said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, well, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And how, it is, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Well, I'm really excited. This is the 100th. I mean, how perfect is it that this is the 40th part of my series on the Gospel of Mark, scripturally very important number, and is also the 100th episode of Character in Context. Um, just can't plan things like that. It's, it's really cool, and how fitting. It's the transfiguration. It's the midpoint of, of this Gospel. It's the um, first half of, of the second part. Anyway, um, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-part curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube, with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids, you can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com because they build on each other, you know. And transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with him through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, this is an account of glory, okay, wedged in between two predictions of suffering. Last week, of course, we talked about Mount Hermon 
and what that location meant to Jews of that time period. But the week before that, we covered the first passion prediction where Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, gave Peter and his other young disciples a messianic reality check. Yes, he's the Messiah, but no, he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting or even wanting. He's just the Messiah they needed instead. And it's an important lesson that Yeshua is rarely what we want, but always what we need. Now, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but we are now at the beginning of um, The Way discourses. By, quote-unquote, The Way, I mean um, that this phrase occurs seven times between um, chapter 8, verse 27, when we see the group on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and um, 10.45, ending with their arrival in Jerusalem. And um, there's also the word um, hodos, which means road. So we're going to see that one a lot, too, or journey, road or journey. We're going to see a lot of Exodus language, way more than we saw in Yeshua's Galilean ministry, because now the second Exodus is upon us, with the journey, you know, to this mountain, Mount Hermon, and the second Sinai event that we will talk about today, and then the continuing journey to the new promised land inaugurated at the cross when, um, with the new creation, excuse me. This is the greater exodus promised by the prophets and most notably Isaiah when Yeshua, as um, Psalm 68, 18 prophesies and Paul quoted in Ephesians 4 when Yeshua ascended on high, leading a host of captives in his train. And forgive me for all the pauses. My nose is running like mad. I'm getting over a cold. And uh, then I drank a cup of tea before doing this. So, you know, heat and, and getting over a cold always amount to runny nose. Bad planning. Now, this whole world, or the whole world was held captive by the Pharaoh of sin and death. And Yeshua liberated not one nation, but all nations from its power. They need to be told so that they can switch allegiance from the kingdoms of this world to a greater kingdom. The greater exodus is Yahweh's chosen way of restoring and delivering the world from the consequences of the sin of Adam through the death and vindication of the second and greater Adam, the final Adam. We covered verse one last time, but we're going to backtrack. They're now in the villages of Caesarea Philippi on the slope of Mount Hermon. This is like the northernmost you know, area of, of ancient Israel. Um, chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, we already talked about this two weeks ago and the possibilities of what this meant. So I'm not going into great detail, but it's almost certain that Yeshua is talking about the transfiguration about to take place. What I want you to be aware of is that we aren't 
going to have a shred of recorded dialogue out of Yeshua until verse 9. In fact, he's only going to say two things in these entire nine verses. Being that this is such a stunning account, you know, we naturally want more details, but they won't be forthcoming. The Bible's like that a lot. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Before I get to the Exodus language, I want to talk about Peter, James, and John, because scripture is not flattering to these three. They're kind of trouble. Peter follows up every victory with doing something just so disappointing. He identifies Yeshua as the Messiah, only to totally blow it by rebuking his master for not being willing to be the right kind of Messiah. He walks on water, only to sink beneath the waves. He is a privileged guest at the Last Supper, uh, only to fall asleep when his master needs him to stay awake praying, and then follows it up with a violent act of chopping off someone's ear. And of course, his denial the next morning that he is even with or, or even knows Yeshua. James and John, of course, they are the genocidal twins who want to call fire from heaven uh, down on the residents of Samaria. Um, you know, why not Andrew? He's my personal favorite disciple who bought uh, the loaves of bread and uh, brought the loaves of bread and fishes to Yeshua and who brought Peter to Yeshua. What about Matthew, who gave up his status and wealth? You know, hey, I named my kids after these two for a reason. They're my favorites. Now, why Peter, James, and John? I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps their foolish, violent zeal was something that Yeshua knew could be refashioned into something amazing. Or maybe the 12 of them were all doing things like this, and, and we just don't have it all written down. In any event, this is the second of three times that they are pulled apart to witness something that the others will not see. The first incident was, of course, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And now here at the Mount of Transfiguration, and of course, later at Gethsemane. There is a fourth time when these three are pulled aside, but that is with Andrew when they're marveling at the greatness of the temple when Yeshua informs them that it will be destroyed. Perhaps Peter, James, and John are the new Moses, Aaron, and Miriam of the greater Exodus, and Yeshua must strengthen their faith after the crushing disappointment they'd experienced. You know, perhaps he needed to reinforce who he is and strengthen their commitment again. You know, just a thought. Or... They represent the three named people who climbed Mount Sinai with Moses and the 70 elders, uh, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. In any event, references to them as a group are going to occur seven times. And we've already seen uh, two in the last verse. The reason why is because this encounter is for their benefit and specifically uh, for their preparation, as we will see, this is another reality check. Now, we have a reference to them being at the foot of the mountain for six days before the three of them accompany Yeshua up to the top of Mount Hermon. 
This is a direct reference to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24:16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So again, we have six days of waiting, followed by going up the mountain on the seventh day. And the text says that he was transfigured. Uh, that's the Greek word, uh, excuse me, metamorpho, where is, which is where we get, uh, obviously, our word metamorphosis. In effect, the veil between this world and the supernatural world was ripped aside for a time, and they saw him as he truly is. This is reminiscent of how Moses was changed on Mount Sinai and his skin shone so much that he had to wear a veil when he came back down the mountain. But, you know, as we see in Revelation, this is his true appearance in glory. And we're going to read Revelation 1, verses 13 through 16, real quick here. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay. So let's look at um, chapter 9, verse 3 here. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And this may not look important on its own, but let's read uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And on to um, chapter 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what this does, his appearance in his glorious heavenly reality, it cinches his identity as the son of man and the son of God, the divine Messiah. These three needed to see this so that they would know, you know, that even though, you know, they didn't understand this new type of Messiah, it didn't change his identity, right? That being said, they would still not fully understand until much later, after his ascension, even. After, actually, you know, after Pentecost, their understanding changed again, and then 10 years later, it would change once more, you know, in the events of Acts 10. Verse 4, And there appeared to them, another them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, apart from Abraham and David, there are hardly two more revered figures for these three in attendance, all right? Both had wilderness ministries. 
both took on wicked kings, Pharaoh and Ahab. Moses was the lawgiver and the leader of the first exodus, um, the lesser exodus, and Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet, who was prophesied to restore all things before the coming of the Lord. Moses told the Israelites that one day a prophet would arise, one like himself, and that they would need to listen to that prophet. Remember that. We find it in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of my Lord or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Remember, Moses did not speak all of Yahweh's words and he was um, barred from entering into the promised land because of it. So these two are the lesser forerunners of Yeshua who is leading his own greater exodus, who is taking on Satan himself, the king behind the rulers of the world, the true slave master, and they're atop Mount Hermon talking with him. What are they saying? We don't know. <laughs> Why are they there looking like, as um, Sigurd um, Grindheim points out in Reading Mark in Context, they're looking like significant, insignificant extras on a movie set. Mark treats them like they're an afterthought compared to Yeshua, but they are there as a witness that God is about to intervene in a brand new and shocking way. Moses and Elijah were seen as eschatological figures, end times slash last days heralds. Their presence can only mean that God is about to do something huge and something decisive. That we can't hear what they're saying to Yeshua means that they are not the focus of this new event. They had their day in the sun, so to speak. This is now Yeshua's time to deliver and restore. Here, you know, where the first century Jews believed that the fallen angels descended to earth and made an oath and a pact with one another to rebel against God and take human wives and introduce wickedness onto the earth, they saw this place as ground zero for all the evil practices of the nations in the world. Now, in their minds, God is reversing that evil time by sending Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, down instead, you know, instead of these fallen angels to meet with Yeshua, the one who will finally destroy the stranglehold of wickedness on the whole world. This was a direct challenge to the ruler of this world that God had had enough. His time of unopposed wickedness has come to an end. There's a new king, and this is a foreshadowing of his coming enthronement. Um, you know, and then, you know, Peter always has to say something, right? Uh, verse 5, and Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is so good we're here. <laughs> 
Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for, you know, they were terrified. To be honest, you know, we'd all be terrified. <laughs> one, he was probably nervous to be there before all this happened. Um, you know, Peter will actually quote from First Enoch, or at least allude to some of the same, same beliefs shared by First Enoch. This is a creepy place that has always been associated with paganism and gross immorality. The tribe of Dan never really took possession of it by driving out the Canaanites, and Jeroboam set up one of his calves here. Herod Philip's home was at the base of this mountain, and there was a grotto dedicated to the god Pan. It would literally be like walking into a haunted house. And so when they get up there having no idea what to expect, and there before them appear Moses and Elijah, and, and we have no idea how they know they were Moses and Elijah. Well, you know, maybe it's how, like, okay, how it is in a dream where you just know things that aren't explicitly said to you. But I mean, they're scared to death, but this is also awesome. Yeshua, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John, at least they saw themselves as servants and not committee members in the meeting. However, let's look at the problem with what Yeshua said here. Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So, first problem, Peter has immediately demoted Yeshua to rabbi you know, down from Messiah status, you know, just as soon as he saw the big two of Moses and Elijah. He doesn't understand that Moses and Elijah are there to serve Yeshua at best. You know, but Peter sees them as Yeshua's equals. Second problem, he wants to make tents, uh, skenos, for the three of them. That means he wants to stay. <laughs> He wants to extend the whole experience and remain on the mountain with his master and, more importantly, his two childhood heroes. He wants to make three tabernacles, having no clue that the finer t final tabernacle, the true temple, greater than the temple, is there with them. He thinks that this is the final revelation of Yeshua's glory, to be here in the uh, presence of Moses and Elijah. Of course he wants this experience to last as long as possible. So would we. After what Yeshua had told them all, maybe he thought that Elijah and Moses were there to talk some sense into him and clear up his obvious misunderstanding of the job of the Messiah. Namely, you know, not to die. But again, an Exodus reference with the tents and the mountain. Mount Sinai, of course, was... Um, where the presence of God had dwelled since the episode with the burning bush until he moved to the Ohel Moed, Moses' tent outside the camp while the Israelites were building the tabernacle. The tabernacle served as a moving palace um, for the presence of God to dwell among them. You know, foreshadowing, of course, Yeshua as the final dwelling place of Yahweh on earth and when we become joined to Yeshua, we become part of that living tabernacle. Oh, I better not start the next part. Yeah. <laughs> we have less than a minute to go before the half here. 
this is just such an exciting portion. And you know what? I, I know I'm rough on Peter and James and John. You know, they must have been good sports because they actually told these stories later so that they would be part of the legendary material. I can just see them going, you guys would believe the stuff that we did. <laughs> and Mark is supposed to be um, one of the followers of Peter. And so he, he says more stuff about Peter you know, than he says about James and John. But it's, it's so important that we see Yeshua's disciples as clueless and fallible because all of Yeshua's disciples are clueless and fallible, us included. Um, or is that just me? No, I'm pretty sure, you know, yeah. We, we really don't get it and we won't, no matter how much we think we do. I'll be back in a few minutes for part two. Rosenquist and welcome back to the second part of Character and Context. And this week we are covering the Transfiguration, which is, you know, huge. And it's the, it's the, actually it's the beginning of the last eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. It's only taken us 40 episodes to get here. So, you know, but let it not be said that I am not thorough. Um, so we're on verse seven. And a cloud overshadowed them. Oh, yeah, uh, we just covered the part where Peter came up with the brilliant idea to make tents for everybody. Because they're staying, you know, and he's scared and they're all scared and they don't know what to do. I shouldn't be so tough on them. They are kids. Anyway, so a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, we see God hidden in a dark cloud above Sinai. Again, Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The cloud overshadows Peter, Jacob, and John. You know, and this is, by the way, a totally different word that when the spirit overshadowed Mary, I, I don't want anyone getting any messed up ideas. And they hear a voice from the cloud, again, just like Sinai, and it addressed the three of them. But before we get to what the voice says, let's take a look, a quick look at Second Chronicles 5, starting in verse 13, and it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. This cloud, the same cloud at Sinai, was also at Moses' tent and dwelt in the tabernacle and would move whenever it was time for Israel to break camp and move somewhere else. 
Here we see it also at the inauguration of Solomon's temple. Those were the verses that I just read. And, and now at the inauguration of the final temple. Yeshua is the final resting place of Yahweh's full glory. What does the voice tell them? After all, Peter's words just demoted Yeshua to the status of a mere rabbi in the presence of Moses and Elijah because they still don't understand. This is my beloved son, my unique son, the son who is the inheritor, the greater Isaac. Listen to him. He's greater than Elijah and Moses put together on their best day. And that's a hard pill for these guys to swallow, that anyone should be listened to over and above Moses and Elijah. But they had to hear that from God's mouth so that later they could tell the others. There's a good reason why we aren't privy to what Moses and Elijah were discussing with Yeshua. It's because they aren't the ones whose dialogue is important right now. What they said doesn't matter. What they had to say is already written down, but Yeshua is the Logos, the Rima, the, the living word, and he has the final say of God to humanity. He is the final say of God to humanity. No one gets to trump anything he said with anyone else's words. During his ministry, Yeshua called himself greater than a whole lot of things. John the Baptist said Yeshua was greater than he was. And then Yeshua said that John was greater than anyone who had come before. Moses said he was greater than the temple. I mean, sorry, Yeshua said he was the greater than the temple. Jonah, greater than Solomon. And in John, you know, he was challenged on being greater than Jacob and Abraham. And by his responses, he proved that he was. And I've got the scriptural references in the transcript here if you want them, which will be posted on Friday on my website. Yahweh says... This one is unique and greater than all who went before him or will come after him. He is the definitive revelation of my will and character. Listen to, obey him first and foremost. Make no mistake. This was a rebuke for their focus being messed up. And what did Moses say in Deuteronomy 18? Um, he said there will be a prophet like me. God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. Listen to him. His words are going to always be God's words. Okay, we read that before. It's unlike Moses, who didn't always, wasn't always faithful. He did a really good job, though, okay? But he's just a guy. Verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they, meaning, you know, the three, the three troublemakers, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. You know, so they snap out of it. The, the cloud must have cleared away and they are alone with Yeshua. So the change to Yeshua's appearance was mind-blowing, but evidently it wasn't permanent. In fact, Matthew 17, 9 tells us that this was a vision, which seems to very much be over now. And Moses and Elijah, it's like they were nothing but curtains hanging from a movie set. They were almost decorative. If you've ever read Ecclesiasticus, also called um, Sirach, chapter 48, you see how Elijah was revered as the greatest ever. In verse 4, it says, How glorious you were, O Elijah, in your wondrous deeds! And who has the right to boast which you have? 
and he's just been totally eclipsed. This probably confused them just as much as everything else put together. Uh, verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what he'd seen, what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So here are his first recorded words since verse 1, when he told the whole group that some of them would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God after it had come with power. And now back to the death references again. You know, geez, you know, Peter, James, and John had probably forgotten all about his first passion prediction, like, oh, what, like seven or eight days ago. They were probably floating on air. But he isn't going to allow them to forget forever, and they need to come back down to earth, literally. Now that they've seen the unveiling of his glory, they need the reality check more than ever. No matter what you've seen and no matter what you see, I am going to die. That's the plan, and it has always been the plan. But here we have a bit of hope. You know, anyway, you know, although they're being told to keep quiet, he's talking to them about the resurrection of the dead, which pretty much everyone except the Sadducees um, believed. You know, they had good reason for not wanting to believe it, because if you were living like they were, you would not want your life. You would want your life to be uh, one and done in the worst sort of way, too. Okay. I once heard someone say that Yeshua would have been a great Sadducee, but if you read what everyone was saying about the Sadducees and how corrupt they were, you would know what a terrible insult that was. Verse 10. But a lot of people just talk about this stuff and they haven't studied them in great depth, you know. So um, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Okay, in the Greek... This reads as quite the debate going on between the three of them. And that's silly because they could just ask him. But they probably know that they don't really want to know what he means. So why are they questioning this? I mean, they know about the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, but why the secrecy until the end of the age? Will the end of the age come that quickly? what they had no clue about yet and wouldn't until the the day of the presentation of first fruits of the barley harvest during the Passover week is that Yeshua wouldn't be resurrected along with everyone else at the end of the age. He would rise first and inaugurate a new age where the prayer from Moses in Numbers 1 would be answered. Uh, starting in verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. Uh, they were among those registered, but had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them! And Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? 
Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Of course, this was um, in response to the fact that he was judging and teaching Israel all by himself. And there were too many. It was too great a job. And his father-in-law had said, you know, this is not good. You need, you need help, dude. Um, but, um, as I hinted at before, it was widely believed that the righteous would rise from the dead at the inauguration of the messianic kingdom, according to precedence. So this was an honor shame thing. It's been a long time since I read it, but I believe it was Abraham and the patriarchs and matriarchs first. I mean, I, I know that that's true. And then different figures based on their renown and faithfulness and all that. I just can't remember who was after Abraham, the patriarchs. So this was expected. But why on earth would they be told not to tell anyone until after the resurrection? Who would even care by that point? And they asked him, because, you know, they're thinking everyone's going to rise at once. It's kind of like, why don't we tell anybody now? It's, you know, it's the world to come. So verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that, Eli that first Elijah must come? Okay, but so now they're seizing on a glimmer of hope. Hey, wait, <laughs> we just saw Elijah. He came, oh my gosh, that means you don't need to suffer. Elijah wouldn't have come first unless the end, end of the ages arrived, and that means the Messianic Kingdom. You can almost hear the abject desperation as they grasp at straws. They don't want him to be rejected, suffer, and die. But even more, they don't want it to happen to them either. And they know the penalty for playing for the losing side in an honor-shame culture. There has to be another answer. Or, you know, at least this is how I read this. Because as we will continue to see with the second and third prediction... They're really not seeing the finality of God's plans. Verse 12. And he said to them, to them, here we got another them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the, that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Good question. Where is it written that the Son of Man should tr suffer and uh, be treated with contempt? Certainly not in First Enoch, which is why, you know. Um, Daniel 9.26 And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Psalm 22, you know, the brutal and heartbreaking psalm that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, you know, gets worse from there. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders has, have, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 53, Zechariah 11 and 12. How about Yeshua's story mirrored in the account of Joseph and his brothers? and the suffering and rejection of Moses, David's persecution by Saul. These are all prophetic windows of God's plan to restore and redeem humanity from their enslavement to the evil one. It had to be this way. 
without seeing the cost of our wickedness, the new creation, transformation of our hearts and lives would never be of any effect. Without a cost and without repayment, we would never give up our sins. Not unless we could do it in such a way that would make us feel like we'd earned God's approval ourselves. And I ought to add that one of the primary reasons to discount the scriptural claims of people who hold First Enoch to be authoritative is that everywhere in First Enoch, the Son of Man is exalted. Nowhere does he ever suffer. We can't accept First Enoch as authoritative and also accept Yeshua as the Son of Man. First Enoch finds its way into scripture through quotations just like certain Greek philosophers because certain quotes reflect truth and commonly held beliefs, but that doesn't make the source of those quotes scripture. Verse 13, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So, excuse me, here's the kicker, and the most contextually loaded verse in this entire section. I actually have it charted out, but I can't share a chart on the radio, right? Anyway, so we have a triple meaning here. Let's just start out with the plain reading. Elijah came and was the victim of they who did whatever they pleased. Who were the they in Elijah's life? Ahab and Jezebel. They did to him whatever they pleased, implying that they had the power to make his life miserable. Not many people in this world have the ability to do whatever they please. And not even in the ancient world, but kings and queens had absolute authority. The next layer, of course, is that this is specifically speaking about John the Baptist. Yeah, um... Elijah's story laid the foundation for understanding this parable, because this is a parable, all right? John the Baptist, as we see in numerous passages throughout the Synoptic Gospels, is Elijah come again. Functionally. We're not talking about reincarnation here. He is saving, saying, excuse me, that John the Baptist served functionally as Elijah and so, in a real way, he was Elijah in every way that mattered without having the same DNA. And like Elijah, John suffered at the hands of Herod and Herodias, who did to him whatever they pleased, more so than with um, Elijah, with uh, Ahab and, and Jezebel, because um, Herodias actually did have him killed. Third layer. And I mentioned this when um, the account of the slaughter of John the Baptist came up in this series. John's passion was a foreshadowing of Yeshua's fate. If they killed the forerunner, they're going to kill Yeshua too. It was a sign of the times. But, um, of course, you know, they weren't able to kill Elijah. Elijah lived. Ahab and Jezebel died instead. Jezebel went in a rather gruesome way, actually. And, and so, you know, this is a real insult to the first century Jewish world, you know, and, and one that's echoed in the Talmud, I might add, uh, as being worse 
you know, worse than the worst of all royal couples, you know, not in the southern kingdom of Judah, but in the uh, northern idolatrous kingdom of Israel. Jezebel was a Sidonian princess, a worshiper of the Baalim, and someone who hated Yahweh's prophets with extreme prejudice. Still, with all her wrangling, she could never kill Elijah. But Herod, the king of the Jews, who was of Edomite heritage, um, meaning um, he was descended from Esau and the Edomites, um, he was the product of forced conversions, which is never, ever, ever a good idea, whether the Jews do it or whether Catholics do it or whether whoever does it. Okay, Spanish Inquisition um, wasn't the first time in history that that had happened. So um, the Jews under um, John Hyrcanus forced the Edomites to convert to Judaism just over a hundred years earlier than this. Um, so, but Herod grudgingly killed John the Baptist in order to not look weak in front of his dinner guest. You know, the malice wasn't his, it was his wife's malice. Guys, women don't like it when you question their uh, sleeping arrangements. Just FYI, <laughs> you probably already knew this. Like I said, they couldn't kill Elijah, and so this parable about a dead Elijah was offensive in the extreme. Elijah was the man, okay? He didn't even die. He got swept away in a heavenly chariot, was probably playing pinochle with Enoch and Moses. You can't shame Elijah like this by saying he came again functionally, but this time they killed him because that is saying that this generation is more wicked than the first generation that led to the exile. You know, they had tried so hard, so hard to avoid idolatry. But there are worse things than idolatry, like being so factionalized, hateful, and power-hungry that you kill the Messiah. But, you know, back to John. They killed him. And, you know, they, they did as they pleased with him. And what does Malachi say will happen if Elijah returns and fails to bring about change? This is very important. Starting in verse 5, Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he's saying, you know, if Elijah doesn't succeed in his mission, and it'll be your guy's fault, not his, then I'm going to destroy the land entirely. And of course, this is exactly what would happen. First in um, 70 of the Common Era, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans, um, and then again in 136 of the Common Era, when Jerusalem was leveled and turned into a pagan capital. Now, before the end here, I want to mention something really cool from Davies and Allison. And if you have spent any time, even a bit of time, researching New Testament context and reading footnotes, these names pop up a lot in footnotes, okay? Anyway, 
they compared and contrasted the configuration or the tr configuration, con the transfiguration to the cross in the Gospel of Mark. And it com this comes out of Garland's NIV application commentary for Mark, which is very readable. Just letting you know those commentaries are. So just real quick here. The um, transfiguration was private, but the crucifixion was public. The transfiguration features two prophets, and the crucifixion featured two thieves. That's a contrast. <laughs> I'm not comparing prophets to thieves, all right? At the transfiguration, um, Yeshua's garments were dazzlingly white, and at the crucifixion, they were stolen. The transfiguration had three male witnesses, and the crucifixion had three female witnesses. The transfiguration had a voice from heaven identifying Yeshua as the Son of God, and the crucifixion had a centurion identifying Yeshua as the Son of God. Both had references to Elijah. Um, at the transfiguration, Elijah was there, and at the crucifixion, they thought he was calling out to Elijah. This is why I read commentaries, because I would never pick up on all this stuff by myself. We we so totally need wisdom from other people who have made it their life and to study this stuff. And, you know, they're standing on the shoulders of the people who taught them. So each generation notices more and more and more as more foundational work of um, study is done. I love reading this stuff. Anyway, next week, they will come down from the mountain literally and we will see more for more um mount sinai first exodus references all this week we've uh, been talking about the, one of the ultimate self manifestations which of course are the events where yeshua shows who he is to be understood later and next week we will have another next week's is easy to miss so definitely tune in <laughs>